You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law with Kyla Lee. Today, my guest on the show is Roy Ho. Roy is also a lawyer at Acumen Law Corporation, and he's here today to talk to us about cell phones and insurance coverage, ICBC breach investigations, and the changes that are coming to uh, insurance coverage in British Columbia and what he thinks about those changes. So, Roy, thanks for coming. Yes, thanks for having me. You've been a lawyer for, oh God, I want I want to say five years almost. That sounds about right. <laughs> I've I lost count. I you were a student, so. <laughs> I've lost lo- count after a while. Less than me, but, lo- but a long time. Yeah. Okay, so you've been paying attention to some stories in the news lately that deal with cell phones and insurance coverage, um, and you had some thoughts you wanted to share. Yeah, so recently there's been a lot more case law that's come out about uh, cell phone usage. Um, a very recent case actually was, uh, um, it came out in Kelowna, I believe, um, maybe a couple of weeks ago, and it was about use. And it demonstrated how broad the law is and the application of the law. This was the case of the guy who was just holding his phone, right? That's right. And he yeah. argued that he was uh, not using it because it was off, but he was like holding it like a crutch, basically. That, that's right, because apparently he was in the habit of always holding his phone. <laughs> and... That's ridiculous. Do you actually believe that, though? Do you do you believe that argument? Uh, possibly, because he also was holding his wallet in his other hand. And apparently, it's a habit of his. How could he hold the steering wheel? If he's he, he, his that phone was what he was doing. He was holding a steering wheel, one with each hand, with these items. Judge didn't buy it in the end, uh, but what comes out of that that's important to note is that the term use was determined to be very broad. You don't actually have to be using any function of the phone. It's the fact that the potential for you to use a function of the phone is enough for you to be ticketed with that ticket. I think it also makes sense from like a perspective of the police and the policing that they have to do, right? You can't, as a police officer, often get the information you need to show that somebody was actually using the phone. Because if you're playing Candy Crush while driving, there's no record of that. Um, And so the use sort of uh, encompassing just holding it takes into account their ability to prove the charge. Absolutely. And the judge makes reference to that as well, stating that it would be impossible to enforce the law if it didn't account for that, because then everybody can say that I was not using the phone. And in order for the law to actually apply properly, um, the tool as a tool, the only thing that can be done is to prevent it absolutely. Okay. Well, you do a lot of insurance-related um, work, so you deal with ICBC and getting people coverage after accidents and and injury claims. Am I correct? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you work in our Richmond office. I work in Vancouver, so we don't see each other that often. Um, but I I wanted to know because there's been a lot of discussion about this lately. The government has wanted to or bandied around with the idea of taking away your insurance coverage if you're using your phone while driving. What do you have to say about that? I think uh, that idea makes sense on um, some level. Yes, it it does. Because it's about um, distracted driving that they're trying to prevent. 
And they're using that as a leverage to make people stop using the phone. I know, but it's not going to work. It's not going to make them stop using the phone. Perhaps. Like, I, I don't, like, I mean, it may or may not work. That's what laws are about. Sometimes they alter behaviors or change behaviors. Sometimes they don't. They have no effect. Now, from the, so from the public safety, uh, dangerous driving, distracted driving angle, it makes sense. Using that as leverage, so it scares people not to use the phone. From an insurance perspective, it makes no sense. Why? Or very little sense. Well, because what is insurance covering you for? For an accident. And if you break it down, what is an accident? An accident is something you don't predict or plan. And oops, I made a mistake. I was sleepy. I was tired. I was distracted is an accident, right? I wasn't paying attention is what you often hear or understand about accidents. Well, that encapsulates cell phone use. I wasn't paying attention because I was doing what? I was texting. I was talking on the phone or whatever it may be. That is what the purpose of insurance is. To take that away, uh, or not take it away, but to make that a breachable term actually defeats the essence of insurance coverage. So why is it different then? Um, because you're going to have to explain it to me and to everybody else. Why is it different than when it comes to something like prohibited driving or driving when you're impaired? Why is that a breachable term and that's okay? There is um, a, a slight distinction there in the sense that it's premeditated acts, right. right? Like you actually have to consciously make the plan, order the drink or purchase the drink or whatever beforehand we're talking about a behavior while driving so it's not like you're drinking and driving at the same time that's a little <laughs> bit different you so you wouldn't be breached if you were just downing a beer while behind the wheel so long you, as you weren't impaired yeah uh, well that that's a that's a whole that's a very complicated question as well but <laughs> but this it, is the podcast of complicated legal questions roy didn't i warn you i you know what um i can tell you uh the short answer is if you were downing the beer while you're driving and you got in an accident no you're not automatically breached Okay. In fact, I would say that actually makes a pretty good case for not breaching you because you haven't even absorbed the alcohol yet. Okay. So, but it's the same thing. It's it's the while you were driving acts, right? So texting or whatever. If you're going to, where do you draw the line of distracted driving? Because you're blurring the lines of insurance coverage now. I mean, what else is distracted driving? If I was putting on makeup, if I was eating a burger while I was driving, next thing you know, mm -hmm. I lose insurance coverage for those things. Like I I'm doing, mul I'm multitasking while I'm driving and that's- And we all do it. Yes, and that's what I'm saying is that insurance is there to cover you for negligence, for carelessness, right? So I, I don't, it doesn't make sense from an insurance perspective. It makes sense from a public safety perspective. Okay. Right. Well, you raise an interesting question for me that I'd never thought about before with this premeditated um, issue. Can you be breached on your insurance if you drive, if you're intoxicated, and it's not voluntary intoxication? Like if you've been given, say, the date rape drug and it kicks in while you're driving, or somebody spikes your drink and you don't realize and your intoxication happens while you're in the course of driving the motor vehicle, can that lead to you being breached? Okay, so no, um, you can't be breached is what I'm going to tell you. Will ICBC do it? Yes, they will. <laughs> and then you have to fight it afterwards. And the problem with that is that it's next to impossible to prove, especially with the date rape drugs or spiking drinks. Because if you don't get tested within 24 hours at a hospital, it's gone. It's almost untraceable. 
Right. Okay. But, I mean, you see, rarely, but you do see cases of involuntary intoxication in, like, the criminal sphere. And I I guess I never thought about how that would play out in the insurance sphere. But is the burden on you to prove that you were involuntarily intoxicated? Yes. Um, while it's not actual, truly a legal burden on you as the insured client of ICBC, the way it pans out is that the burden does rest on you. Because... Once ICBC believes that they have some basis or ground in denying insurance coverage, the short answer of it is, so sue me. Pro- okay. Prove it. Prove it that we should be providing you coverage. And that's where you're, a lot of people are left with uh, holding the bag because e- either one, their claim is not worth a lot to actually sue on, so it's more costly to chase after, or two, they don't have the money to sue ICBC. So then ICBC's got them you know, uh, over a barrel. How do you keep yourself then from being breached? Well, there, in the insurance contract, there's also there's probably about 12 ways of being breached off the top of my head. <laughs> well, don't lie to ICBC. I guess it's the easiest one. That is the easiest one. That is the actually the one that uh, usually ICBC falls back on um, because people realize that they might have done something wrong. So they start lying and they, catch, they get caught in the lie. And then... Automatically, whatever they were being investigated for, for a breach of contract, automatically switches to, you know what, forget about that. You lied to us. We're not covering you. And that's how they get out of a lot of uh, insurance claims. Right. And so because insurance works on this sort of premeditated actions versus um, actions that just occur while you're behind the wheel because you're negligent or stupid or just a really bad driver, um, there's really no harm in coming clean with ICBC about speeding, am I right? Yes. There, or there or anything, it. whatever motor vehicle act offense that you may have committed. Yep. There. Well, sorry, there is some motor vehicle act offenses that could reach your insurance coverage, but speeding is not one of them. Neither is careless driving. Which So what does breach your insurance coverage then? Uh, one that comes to mind immediately is failing to remain in an accident. Uh, that does breach your um, collision coverage. And is that in all cases? Like, what if you get a ticket as the owner of the vehicle um, as opposed to the driver? It, it would be the owner um, that gets breached but because it's their policy. But then if the driver is, is identified, then what happens is that ICBC will breach the driver. Okay. So you as the owner would then not be liable. Yeah. So what happens when you step into uh, a car of somebody else's vehicle like, or another vehicle of uh, your friends or family? You step into the shoes of the insurance policy. The the insurance policy subsumes you as a passenger or driver of the vehicle. So something that you do, even though you are not named in the policy, could breach the policy. So that's what I'm saying. If you can identify the driver from the hit and run, then what would happen is ICBC will provide the owner coverage, but not the driver, and they'll bill the driver. Sometimes, though, in a lot of cases that we deal with is the owner and the driver are one and the same person. So what happens then? That means that while the owner is, um, while the owner is breached, then so would the also the the driver. That's pretty much it. So right? basically, you just get breached. Yeah. Do you get double breached or just no, breached? Just okay. breached. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as a double. Breach. No, there isn't. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, 
And so, okay, so how does a breach, like, how does that play out? Can you walk us through the steps of what ICBC does in a breach investigation and, and what you should do to protect yourself? Like, say I'm in an accident and I rear-end somebody at a red light. Take a really common situation. What what do I do next? How do I not get breached? Um, I can tell you generically that right off the bat on how they determine if there's a breach is based on what you tell them at the initial reporting stage. There will be certain questions that they will ask that will trigger another line of questioning that will get them to, and they're essentially checking off boxes on the other end going, is there something that's worthwhile looking into here about a breach? So a good example is, and a common question they ask is, which seems innocuous at first, Mm -hmm. is where were you going? Typically, an answer might be, I'm going to work. Right. But of course, they're digging into what use is your vehicle Exactly. Being. Right. And, oh, where do you work? Because you start... Yeah. You How know, far this, away is your work from your home? You get into a lull of answering distances. questions. And then next thing you know, so that is a, and it, that's a standard question for them. So And that kicks off an investigation for them. Other sources would be uh, police reports or whatnot. The most common one is the other driver. Uh, the third party in that case where you you were ended. If they mentioned ICBC that the police arrested you or they smelled booze on you or something like that, they didn't, police don't even have to be involved. They just go, oh, I smelled booze on the guy who's drunk. That already kicks off the investigation. When you call them or they call you, they start asking you questions surrounding alcohol. So when you ask me, you know, how do you prevent it? Really, it depends on the nature of the accident and no two accidents are the same. So the questions will always vary depending on what the facts are and how the accident uh, went down. So right? it sounds like it's a good idea not to do your own ICBC report or at least speak to a lawyer first. It is, but that is especially the case when you know that there might be an issue. And you, you know, like generally people have a pretty good idea that I might have done something here that is that might void my insurance coverage, right? There are, of course, those people who are, quote-unquote, innocently caught up in a breach in mm-hmm. the sense that they were innocently answering questions. Oh, I work here, blah, 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 you know, and, yeah, it's 20 kilometers away. And it's like, wait a second. So, you know. <laughs> if, if you asked me how far the office is from home, I'd probably say, I don't know, like 20 kilometers. It's really like eight. Yeah. Um, I looked it up on a map once and I was like, that, it's that close? It feels like it takes forever. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I could see how you could get innocently caught up in a breach by saying the wrong thing because you just are thinking differently than reality. Yeah. So for those people, I mean, like, you're, you were unfortunate enough to get caught up in it, but you can, <clears throat> like, there's nothing, you don't need to contact a lawyer in those circumstances because really there was nothing, it was ra- rather innocent and everything remained innocent until they somehow caught you in some kind of a, uh, incriminating kind of statement. Right. Well, there's that really famous case of Arsenovsky from the Court of Appeal. It was the decision of um, Madame Justice Griffin where ICBC had breached her for some alleged inconsistency in her statement, but it turns out it was just her lack of familiarity with English that led to that inconsistency. Yeah. So that that's, that's a perfect example of quote-unquote an innocent person getting caught up right but you don't you don't want to end up like mrs arsenovsky and have to go through multiple levels of court to get the judgment that you're owed no but most of those people like i would say like i'm just 
spitballing numbers here that probably aren't inaccurate, but I would say like, you know, 80% of the people out there don't have a problem with their claim. They just put it in and all that kind of stuff. It's really those, like, and it comes back to your question is, you know, uh, you should, con- should you contact a lawyer? Really, it's when you know that there is something wrong. If you don't, I mean, could you contact the lawyer to do your claim? You can. Is it um, the best? Well, financially, if you're, if you're, if you don't have a lot of money, then maybe not. But tactically, no, it actually raises some alarms for ICBC, raises some flags, and they go, why is this person getting a lawyer? What trouble are they in? And maybe you're not in any trouble, but then right. you just totally created a whole bunch of red tape at this humongous bureaucratic machine that starts asking all these questions because they start looking for a trouble. Now, is that, do you think that that's part of the reason why they have this so-called dumpster fire problem, that it is this huge bureaucratic machine that starts asking more questions than are necessary if there's even the slightest hint of a red flag? Like, God forbid somebody get a lawyer to do something for them? Yes, I, I, I think that a large part of the fire is because of this. And in my five or whatever years of experience, I, I can tell you that it's, not uncommon for at ICBC for the left hand to not know what the right hand is doing. I'm dealing with maybe two or three different ICBC departments at a time, and I'm educating them on what the claim's about or the information on the claim. Or I tell them that something exists, a document, one of their documents exists, and they don't even know about it. Oh, we already submitted that. Oh, I don't. Oh, I found it. Like whatever. Like they they really don't know what they're like. A lot of them they they just. Everybody gets so um, focused or tunnel visioned. Uh, it's because it's such a big creature, right? So then everybody's just doing their own thing and nobody really knows or cares what other people are doing. Because I know like, you know, one of the things that they're trying to do to cut back on costs and to fix their massive, almost a billion dollar debt problem is to sort of try and take lawyers out of the picture and cap injuries. And we're going to talk about that a little later. Um, But before we move on to that, do you see that as the problem? Do you see um, lawyers and the involvement of lawyers as the problem? Or in your experience as somebody who deals firsthand with ICBC all the time, what weaknesses do you identify? Uh, Well, Many parts of that question, there, there are a lot of <laughs> yeah, weaknesses. <laughs> but uh, we'll start with the lawyer thing. Um, on the side of the insured, which it would be our clients, the insurer is ICBC and you as a person with the policyholders insured. On the side of the insured, getting a lawyer costs them nothing. They expect you to pay for it out of pocket yourself. Your insurance policy doesn't cover for private lawyer um, services. The way I explain it to people is, Sure, I, I can cut my own hair or I can change the oil in my car myself. But if I want to hire somebody to change my oil, that's my choice. So that's the same thing. Uh, ICBC looks at it like that too. You want to hire a lawyer to help you with your claim? Go ahead. It's on you. So for the lawyer, it's only one-sided than the lawyer cost. It's ICBC side. Right. But they're not eliminating their ability to be represented by lawyers. No. because They're they, not capping the amount of money they can spend on a lawyer. No. They, they have their own in-house legal department, which is quite big. How uh, many lawyers do you know? I can't say for certain. I would I would guess something close to 100, I would say. Wow. They have three litigation uh, offices in the lower mainland itself. That's insane. Yeah. And then they have lawyers that they contract out, right? Yes, and then they they contract they farm out things where um, maybe perhaps it's complicated or they don't have the manpower to do. 
Right. Like I, I was going through an injury claim a little while ago and they had a lawyer that worked at a firm that also does like prosecutions of federal drug cases. And uh, I thought it was very strange. Like here I am, you know, trying to get coverage for an accident I'd been in and I'm up against a lawyer who works with people that I know because they are opposing counsel in court. Yeah. And uh, like the costs on that must be astronomical. It is. And um, there's a, with their their lawyer costs, a lot of it is, um, I don't want to say that they're to blame, but uh, they have a big hand in it. There's escalation that they create. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So you get a lawyer on your side, and all of a sudden they lower up and it just kind of blows out of proportion. Um, but they, they often don't need to create that extra level of red tape, but they do. And then what happens in that sense is that, like, for instance, in your circumstance, they get another firm involved. Next thing you know, you're talking through a middle person to get to ICBC now, and you have another layer to go through mm-hmm. and more paperwork and, and more delays. More and this staff. Time. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. And they are paying these bills. Now, the, the bigger part about it is I understand well, the no, need. No, they're not paying the bills. We as the taxpayers are paying the well, bills. Well, that, that, yes, that is true. Uh, we're subsidizing those bills. <laughs> But I mean, and then they, ICBC's paying this law firm their bills, right? They're they're like issuing them an invoice. ICBC just writes the check, goes here you go, right? Uh, but the the other thing about this is I understand their need to protect themselves legally. Uh, but what I do notice on their lawyer side of escalating all this is they're getting them involved when it's not necessary to protect themselves. Right. And how often is it like you must see this with people coming to you for injury claims and for for breaches and people who are worried they're about to be breached because they've done something that could get them breached? How many people out there are really trying to game the system and get coverage where they don't deserve it or get uh, coverage for something that's not as significant as they're making it out to be? Um, For... The injury part of it, most people are honest and um, forthright. And is there exaggeration? Some people, but it's a little bit and it's not. Yeah, but those are the people that are going to exaggerate anyway. Who yeah. Are like, like oh, I, mean, it, I hurt my finger and now I can never work again. It's not It's not to the point. It's just minor exaggeration. I'm, I'm not professional yeah. piano players, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It's like kind of like, like white. sandwich like, artist. <laughs> oh, no. Now I can't put toppings on sandwiches. <laughs> What's that, the, the Sprinkle Bay Chef? Yeah. <laughs> um, Exaggeration is for sure uh, for some people, but it, it, I can it to more, I like it to more like uh, white lies. You know, they're, they're, they're just, they're minor. Um, you know, they're, they don't make a big impact on the claim and it's not like a big part of the claim. Like, oh, uh, you know, I, I can't ski anymore or, or I broke my leg. Like, I, I can never walk again or something like that. And you see them like, you know, doing car wheels. Like, <laughs> it's not like that, right? So the injury side of it, yeah. For the breach part of it, I would say on the whole, most of the people um, knew that they did something wrong. And probably uh, it, the, what it comes down to is that they recognize that they made a mistake. Uh, most of the time it's out of ignorance because who the hell reads these things when you sign them? Like nobody, right? I don't, I don't think they ever even gave me a copy of the policy before making me sign it to read. It, it, it's, it's, it says it's endorsed. So in other words, you have to look it up online. 
Right. Yeah, that's where you find it. You don't oh, get a copy. Okay. It's well, endorsed in. See, the... I assumed it was in that package of paper that I shoved. It's in... not. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I'm saying that like these people, they knew that like the breach people, they they knew that they did something wrong. But it's the most of them is out of ignorance. Is that like I didn't know that that was an issue. Right. Right. And that's where... Maybe not for the prohibited drivers. No, not for the prohibited drivers, but like for... (laughs) I didn't know I didn't have insurance when I wasn't supposed to be driving at all. So that was one... That's one term out of like the 12 that I could think of right now, right? Right. But the other 11, you know, most of them, yeah, they they probably didn't uh, deserve it. And that's the thing. It's... For me, it's about making ICBC realize that, you know, they may not realize it, they may not say it, but these people made a mistake and it's not going to happen again kind of thing, Right. And I just try to put it in terms for them where um, they don't have a case. If we move this forward, uh, their case is not strong enough. Ours is going to be stronger. And then they usually wind up giving up. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the breaches for impaired driving. Because, I mean, that's the one that sort of is the most, I think, most of the people listening to this are wanting to hear about. Um, What... On what, how do they breach someone for impaired driving? What do they need? How do they prove it? So the test that they use or the standard that they use is um, not impairment, uh, which is the term um, of art used for criminal law. Um, And that's a different standard of proof. And it's also a different standard of concept. Uh, It applies to different things when you're criminally impaired. What ISBC looks at is whether you're incapable, which is... Incapable. That's, like, got to be really, really drunk. That's right. Because I'm, like, kind of (laughs) capable up to a certain point. So it's not... So it's not... In other words, what it boils down to is that it's not a zero-tolerance policy. It's not that if I had one drink, which you could be impaired in that circumstance with uh, criminal charges, that you lose insurance coverage. It is that you're incapable of operating the vehicle as a result of alcohol and incapable of operating it period or incapable of safely operating it operating a period wow yeah so it's um it's about uh it it breaks down to um various circumstance or various sets of facts that they'll look at uh one thing for instance is motor control stuff like that right right uh that that would indicate because if you can't control your body you can't control the machine um, other other things would be uh, driving behavior. Uh, one thing that often is quite the nail in the coffin for a lot of people is just prior to the accident, you have witnesses saying that they're weaving in, in between the lane, uh, stuff like that. That's right off the bat for ICBC. He's like, well, he's not capable of controlling that car. That's quite clear. He crashed like a block later or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, you'd get that in a criminal trial too if you had a bunch of witnesses saying you were driving like a maniac and then crashed your car and subjected to an impaired investigation you're gonna have a real uphill battle when it comes to time for your trial um okay so if that doesn't square then like with what the criminal impaired driving definition is because for a criminal conviction it's any degree of impairment even slight um so you could have you know the slurred speech and the fumbling with your documents and um an odor of liquor on your breath and you know maybe you didn't signal a turn and you could maybe end up convicted probably not i'm i wouldn't i don't know um arguable anyway um any degree even slight but how does that square then if you're convicted in criminal court you're automatically breached yes that's actually written into your contract of insurance and that's 
one of the many ways that they can breach you. But isn't that like a huge glaring inconsistency in the legislation where you could be convicted for something that wouldn't actually meet the definition of impairment for the purposes of the... No, not really. It's So here's how I see how this how legislation is playing out here. The incapability test is to catch everybody else who isn't right. convicted. Now, is it inconsistent? I don't know. I mean, legislators made it that way and that's the way it is <laughs> you know but uh end of the day this is how i i i think it's it looks like to me is that if you get convicted of the offense icbs like the the crown prosecutors are the ones who prove that offense icbs doesn't have to do any proving anymore right, right? they just have to say okay you were incapable and then then you have to prove that you weren't incapable yeah if it was the incapability test grounds then they have to prove that you weren't capable of operating the car but then when it's a automatic breach ground as in a conviction they go we don't have to prove anything because right. crown proved their case for us that you have lost insurance coverage and mind you it's not crowns proving incapability they're proving that you have committed this offense which triggers the loss of insurance because of that offense and this is where i don't think it's about consistency uh because a lot of people don't know this, although the most common one is impaired. It's any motor vehicle driving offense will breach your insurance coverage. Criminal so, offense. Cr cr sorry, criminal offense. So dangerous <laughs> driving, uh, hit and run criminal. Flight um, from police. Stuff like, yeah, all those things will breach it. So it's not about them proving um, incapability. It's just about them getting the proof that you committed this offense and you're guilty of it, which is written in your contract that says that we won't provide you coverage for a crime. Okay. All right. Well, that I mean, that kind of makes sense. Although I feel like, although maybe it would be unfair, but it, yeah. it would make it, better sense to put the criminal standard into the insurance contract so that the, the conduct the insurer is expecting is clearly defined. And you know what? And it does make sense in some uh, respect to with ICBC because um, they are a crown corporation. And by virtue of that, the charter rights applies to them. So, I mean, why not use the same standard, right? Now, is there a standard in, in the insurance contract that also deals with your blood alcohol level? Like, do you get breached at a certain BAC if they can get those readings to be ad admissible? Uh, yeah, so there's um, old, I would say, old case law. Uh, but I, some call it uh, the the standing authority. I, I would disagree that I find that there has been a shift in more recent time of case law uh, that's kind of going away from that. But in this case, the the court ruled that 160 BAC was too much. That's twice the legal limit. Yes. Okay. And since that case, ICBC's had a de facto policy or rule saying that 160 and above breach because we have, and they're holding up that case law saying, but we have this and it says it's too much and they will de facto kind of breach you just based on that reading in itself because of that case law. And again, I've seen other cases go the other way, um, although they don't specifically address what the number is. That case, unfortunately, did address right. the specific numbers. So they could hold it up and say, here's our gold Abs standard yes. number. Yes, absolutely. Right. So uh, I mean, I've seen newer cases, like as recent as 2015, I believe, or 2014, uh, where, you know, the, the person blew over, um, 
but they were looking the court looked at everything else they looked at the whole picture they didn't they, like how was she behaving uh because right. you, you can get the chronic alcoholics who are at 200 and don't display any incapability any, yeah, exactly right? and that's the thing you can have one beer and be incapable and you can have uh three and not be incapable right like you could have 13 and not be incapable uh, yeah. <laughs> for some people. So, um, like, everybody who's, everybody who's impaired doesn't have to be incapable, but everybody who's incapable necessarily has to be impaired, like, if that makes any sense. Yep, that, does, right? that, that makes sense. That's a good way of, of putting it. Okay, so 160 is what they use, but it's not written anywhere in any policy. term of no. your policy yeah, no, or it's anything not. like that. No, okay. All right. And uh, what then happens when it comes to immediate roadside prohibitions because that's a really big thing there's no numerical reading the tests are done on the basis of asds so the officer has a suspicion not grounds to believe the person's impaired can they ever breach on the basis of an irp they have uh, they can and they or so here i guess i'll give some backstory or history to this when the irp scheme first came out um the superintendent of motor vehicles didn't really address other stakeholders like ICBC. So they didn't know what to do with the IRP breaches. And for the longest time, ICBC automatically breached on IRPs because they thought it was the criminal standard and it was a criminal charge. Right. But it wasn't. So they've sorted it out since then. And I, I think I was helping them. Was it them, you that sorted it out? I helped them sort it out, like, <laughs> probably because when I first started doing this, I'd have to educate the adjusters almost eight out of 10 cases. Now it's maybe one out of 10, right? As they, they start to learn, right? So that's like, they don't do that anymore. But while there isn't a precise reading, there is a baseline reading. So there's something from the start off of. Right, which is the fail. Yeah. And that is in itself a problem because they could use that as a starting point and anything. And what I've been seeing as of late is this. If you produce a fail, and you disclose to us alcohol consumption, we will bring those numbers or the variables to our expert to calculate. And if it doesn't coincide with why you got the fail, you've given us a false statement and we will we will reach you. Really? For false statement on the basis of a drinking pattern? Yes. They're saying that, oh, there's no way you could have failed uh, if you say, tell me you drank this much, therefore you lied. So even though the Supreme Court of Canada recognizes that breath testing devices are operated by humans and are fallible and that logic has been applied in bc to the irp scheme they don't care they don't care they don't wow. care because this is the civil standard and all they need is just a balance of probabilities what so they... does winning your irp change that like if you get the irp revoked because the fail was not reliable certain revocations the ones that say asds aren't reliable will definitely get you out of hot water the technical ones such as not sworn <laughs> yeah fail to get the report sworn um not the driver of the vehicle those things aren't going to help you right, right. okay but what if you actually weren't the driver of the vehicle? Well, then here, here's your problem with ICBC, though. They're going to ask you who was the driver. Because the only way your car gets from point A to point B is either you drove it, you lent it to someone, or it was stolen. Okay. Right. And if you want to walk down the path of a... Or it was towed and then dropped off. That is possible, too. But then that's also stolen, I guess, in a sense. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, sometimes the street sweepers come and they move your vehicle. They just pick it up and move it a couple blocks away. They might have. But then that would make it the tow truck 
driver's accident. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting into like real like unlikely scenarios here. Yeah. UFO <laughs> yeah. abducted me. Time warp. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So, but back to reality. Um, then how do you keep yourself from getting breached if you get an IRP and you have an ASD reading that's not an accurate reflection of your blood alcohol concentration? Uh, well, it's tricky. Um, there are a lot of, there's no easy answer to that. It's again, back to the fact that because there's no two accidents are alike, um, you're, you're trying to look for, so that's one piece of the puzzle for ICBC, the, the IRP, like the, the, the reading of the fail and everything. That's one piece of the puzzle. Do they get the IRP police report? No, they don't. Okay. They don't. But they what they do see, from what I gather, they they won't share this with me. What they actually do see, because they hold their cards very close to their chest. But right. what I gather from you know the years of them kind of slipping information to me, inadvertently or subconsciously, is that they will see what your driving status is at the time of reporting when they punch in your information. So if you got an IRP, they will see that you're prohibited. Okay, right. so they know whether you won or lost. They don't see that. All they see well, is Well, if you're that... not prohibited, you must have won. Well, that's the thing. They're not looking at it again. Yeah, they're looking at the time of reporting. Right. To see if you had a valid driver's license. So, Because that's part of their systems check, right? Right. So then they'll look at it and go, oh, you got prohibited. But it was on this day and it was for that. Okay, it doesn't apply to the accident. After all that, you know, with the appeals and everything... I mean, do they look at it again? I've never seen them look at it. They just wait for us to tell them, me to tell them what the status is, or what the uh, results were, the update is, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, no, they don't get the records. And that's because they're two different bodies, the Superintendent of Motor Vehicles and ICBC, the insurance company. So they're not going to get it, right? So how do they know, then, that the ASDs were reliable? How do they know they were calibrated properly or operated properly? They don't. They don't at all. They just, they just they just presume it? they, they presume that it is. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I I'd love to see you fight something like that in court because it seems to me that if you're presuming a device known for fallibility if not calibrated or operated correctly, and and the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that, um, if you're presuming that that's reliable in the absence of any evidence that it is. And then breaching someone on a false statement because they provided information to say, well, wait, this couldn't have been accurate. That's got to be a really great case to take to court. Oh, uh, we have a few already uh, that are in the works right now. Can um, I come? <laughs> absolutely, you can. <laughs> Let you me know, come to the hearing. <laughs> one of the problems that we're encountering with these, like sometimes we have those really great cases to go far on, mm-hmm. is that the client themselves don't want to pursue it because it's maybe because it's too costly or their claim isn't worthwhile. Like sometimes they're just fighting for, you know, $15,000 for the damages on their car. Right. And it's going to cost more for to five go, days yeah. of litigation with an ICBC lawyer. Yeah. And, and here, here's the other more, I guess, practical reality of it is that while the adjusters at ICBC, uh, make these decisions based on these presumptions and they don't really care about the law mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. And I, I could get into a whole, that a whole different bag of worms for that one. But anyways, um, when you sue, you're going to wind up getting, like we just talked about earlier, a defense lawyer on the other side, probably farmed out. They will see what you're talking about. They will see that, gee, 
the law in Canada doesn't really support the strength of these things that ISPs are relying on. And what's going to happen more likely than not is, although we can't guarantee that they won't fight us all the way, is that they'll probably wind up dropping it because of the fact right. that it's recognized that these things aren't good. But you're at the front end here where people aren't, I don't want to say they're not educated, they're just not... But you need, like, if you had one good judgment that you could hold up and wave in the adjuster's they, face the way they wave the 160 judgment. Well, th that would help. But see, that 160 judgment thing is, is more of like a prerogative of the company where they send out a memo to every single adjuster and they go, oh, here you go. This is it. Everybody use this. I, And that's why I'm saying it would help if we got that good judgment for some adjusters. Some of them still won't care. Until they're told by the man up top the head of ISBC saying that that case means something, the one that Acumen Law Corporation won, it means something, and this is the way, the standard that we're going to follow from now on, until they get that directive, it really means nothing. Wow. Okay. And that's why I'm saying that they don't care about the law, because I just, I always have all these cases where I throw law at them, and they don't care. Until I get a lawyer on the other side, they don't care. So maybe maybe things will change and we're getting close to running out of time but i i did want to get back to this maybe things will change then when it goes to the civil resolution tribunal because you'll have something that's a little more law adjacent uh what things would go to the tribunal well which parts like the injury claims oh for that part of it um i would think so uh but I, I don't know how the logistics of how that's going to pan out or work out right. for the tribunal okay. itself. I mean, what I, more, what I more wanted to talk about, and sorry to like completely shift topics, but um, was this, this complaint that a lot of lawyers have been making. And I looked at the legislation and I think it's inherently problematic. Um, what is defined as a minor injury that's going to be dealt with by this tribunal that's going to have a cap on the amount of money that you get for your damages um, and that definition is in Bill 20. If you want to look it up, you can go to the Legislative Assembly of British Columbia website and look at the bills. It's in Part 7 of Bill 20, Section 101, which defines minor injury as an abrasion, a contusion, a laceration, a sprain or a strain. Sure. Uh, a pain syndrome a psychological or psychiatric condition, or a prescribed injury or an injury in a prescribed class of injury. And of course, we don't know what those are going to be yet. But it's more the pain syndrome and the psychological or psychiatric conditions that have a lot of lawyers, especially plaintiff's counsel, worried. And I wanted your input on that. Yeah, I, 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 it makes me cringe too when I see that really nebulous term, pain syndrome. What, I, I what is a pain syndrome? Well, presumably, I, I'm not too sure what they're trying to refer to, right? Um, it's not a, a medical term. Is it like a chronic pain condition? That's what I, I'm like, assuming that's what it's I mean, my back mean. hurts all the time. Is that a pain syndrome? Yeah, like it, it's chronic. That's what I'm assuming it means. But then it's that that that's a problem because for in multiple levels, for some people, they don't know some some injuries. They don't know it's a problem till later on right so when they they think they're better and all of a sudden there's a, a flare-up or or um they get tested for something they go oh guess what you got a you know some kind of uh here, here's a really good one um what they call um triggering of a degenerative disease so right. everybody's supposed to degenerate uh their bones and muscles <laughs> no, with time and age no. yeah. i know we're not invincible but you know law supports the fact that 
injury or trauma to that part can make it onset earlier. Right. And you could get oh compensated God, for that. Imagine if you got an injury that made you get old faster. It, but it is that because it, it's your bones, like you're getting osteoporosis almost uh, at an earlier age than you should have. Now, what used to be said by ICBC was, oh, it's natural. It's going to happen. Or they had it already. It had nothing to do with it. But later on, the case law has been very supportive of, or the jurisprudence has been very supportive of the fact that it could be triggered early. So maybe they're supposed to get in 10 years, but not for this 10 years before. So you're paying right. them for this 10 years. So that's the problem with the pain syndrome. Like, that's one of them is that you don't know these things till you get tested. Right. Right. And you may not get tested right away. Right. And that could be a problem that persists because of that. Right. But it's also, I think, problematic because you have caps on the injury, even though, you know, if you, I talked about the sandwich artist hurting their finger earlier, very facetiously. But if you're a sandwich artist and you injure your finger, you know, you lose out on your minimum wage job at Subway and maybe after a period of time you can figure out how to make the sandwiches without it. But if you're a concert pianist or a court reporter and your finger gets injured, you lose out on, you know, a job that pays more money, um, that has more, presents more opportunities for you and, and has a significant impact on your life. But those two things are assessed the same under these injury caps. Uh, right now, that's what it looks like. Now, in practice, uh, non-pecuniary damages is what the, the minor injury is supposed to apply to. Is partitioned off from stuff like wage loss, loss of income, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So... If they are lumping this all together, yes, it will include all that wage loss stuff. If they're not, then you can still make those claims for, you know, oh, I could have been making this much or I didn't work because of this injury, that my finger injury or whatever, right? Um, so it's, it's it, it, like right now, it's there's so much stuff to hammer out. Like I'm not too sure how they're going to include what is what, right? Um it's going to be interesting to see what they do with the prescribed injuries and the prescribed classes of injuries. And that's, yeah. I think, the, the uncertainty of it is the, the most frightening part to me. I mean, I understand people being upset about the pain syndrome and the psychological or psychiatric conditions, and there's lots of good discussion out there about why. But this sort of specter of being able to prescribe anything... Um, that's and... the part that really irks me too. It, it's it's not that uh, it's arbitrary. It's you know why is this injury included and why is that one not? Yeah. Who made you God to go? Well, and yeah. what you know what's costing more money to government? The injury du jour that they they don't like to pay out um, is all of a sudden going to be a prescribed class of injury. And is it going to get to the point where we see everything falling under the definition of minor injury because? Whoever was in charge at the time thought it was a problem, and over the course of time, we just end up with this laundry list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that could very well be. Um, I mean, there's so many things about this definition here, or the the how it's described here is is a problem. I mean, like back to pain syndrome, pain. Well, can you prove pain? What is pain? It's subjective. So how do you how do you say that this person is not in pain? Right. Yeah. It, it's next to impossible. Do you think this law can be constitutionally challenged? I think it will be. Um, see, that's the thing. It's so early. 
I'd like to see what they want to finalize on before I make a comment about whether, like right now, it, it as it stands now, I think it could be, right? But I think it's way too early. Okay. I can tell you this, though, in all fairness, uh, other jurisdictions in Canada have done this or do this already. And they got away with it. And, well, it's working. Like, the system works. I, I don't know how happy the people are or whatever, or they're used to it or something. Like, I can tell you Saskatchewan does something like this. Um, Manitoba does some kind of a hybrid system of this, like some kind of combination of this. So uh, other jurisdictions do do stuff like this. Um, I think uh, there are lessons that they could probably draw from there. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Roy, for coming on Driving Law and talking to me about ICBC. And I've learned a lot. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot as well. And if you want to get in touch with Roy about an injury claim or about an ICBC breach investigation or you're dealing with ICBC and you don't know what you need to do, what's the best way for them to contact you, Roy? Uh, They could give me a call at Acumen Law Corporation at the 604 three seven zero three zero five zero okay perfect and uh if you want to talk to me at all about any of the content on the program today or past episodes or about uh impaired driving or anything else you can give me a call i work out of our vancouver office at 604-685-8889 you can also find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and acumenlaw.ca or on my website kylalee.ca and thanks again for tuning in to another episode of driving law we'll be back next week with another interesting guest and more exciting discussions.